as the holiday season approaches, I'm sure you, like anybody else, gets into holiday music. Whether it's current stuff like Last Christmas by Wham, or you like stuff like Run Run Rudolph. Maybe you're a purist and you like the old classics, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, White Christmas, Jingle Bells, and there's various artists who sing them. You know, you have Elvis Presley and then Mariah Carey and so forth and so on. But a name that kind of comes up all the time is Bing Crosby. Now, I don't know if you know who Bing Crosby is, but I didn't really even know who Bing Crosby was. I know him for the song A White Christmas, and that's really about what I know about him. But it turns out that Bing Crosby played a huge role in music and radio. He happens to be one of 22 celebrities who has three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Can you even imagine? So why not with this holiday episode, let's look at the storied career of Bing Crosby. Harry Lillis Crosby Jr. was born May 3rd, 1903, and he would be the fourth of seven children to his parents. Seven children, that's a lot. He was born in a place called Tacoma in the state of Washington. His parents then moved to Spokane, and his father built a house at 508 East Sharp Avenue. That home still acts as a museum to Bing Crosby to this day has over 200 artifacts, including the Oscar that he won. And his lineage can be traced all the way back to the trip of the Mayflower. At about the age of seven or eight, give or take, this is when Bing Crosby got his nickname. Now, as he recalls when he was being interviewed and somebody asked him, well, you know, how'd you get your nickname? He told them simply that when he was a kid, he used to really love playing cops and robbers. And... When playing cops and robbers, you have to shoot the robbers. And he had his trusty six shooters made out of wood, and he would pull them out and start shooting and shouting Bing Bing at people. And that is how he got the nickname Bing, instead of using his actual name. At about the age of 14, Bing got himself a job at Spokane's auditorium. And because he was working there, he got to see a lot of the acts of the time. One of those people being a guy by the name of Al Jolson. Now, you probably don't know who Al Jolson is, and nobody blames you. You weren't around in 1917. So, to explain, he was really a kind of like a who's who entertainer. He was very exuberant and entertaining and energetic, and a lot of people really liked the shows that he put on, including Bing, who described Jolson's performance as nothing less than electric. After graduating from Gonzaga High School, at about the age of 20, he joined a new band, comprised of a guy named Al Rinker, Miles Rinker, James Heaton, Claire Pritchard, and Robert Pritchard. They formed a group which has a terrible, terrible name called the Musicladeers. 
terrible, terrible name. Anyways, and they played for high school students and club goers, and they played at the local Spokane radio station. And this went on for about two years. Then they disbanded, all with the exception of Bing and Al, who got jobs at a place called the Clemmer Theater in Spokane. The Clemmer Theater is now called the Bing Crosby Theater. And with another guy, they became something called the Three Harmony Aces. Now, the three of these guys played music in between picture shows. So they'd show a picture, and then these guys would play music in between the shows just to kind of keep the audience kind of engaged and interested. But these boys had bigger aspirations in mind. So Bing and Al decided to go meet up with Al Rinker's sister, Mildred, in Los Angeles because she had contacts. She was a singer herself. So she would be able to kind of get them a foot in the doorway of being a performer. Perfect. So off they went to Los Angeles. And it all worked out. They were hired to play 13 weeks at the Boulevard Theater in Los Angeles. They got paid about 75 bucks a week. In today money, that works out to be just shy of $1,100 a week. So not bad. And as they kind of played, they developed their skills as singers and performers. They're very, you know, energetic to keep with the college students. And as they developed these skills, they were approached by the Paul Whiteman organization. The Paul Whiteman organization needed something different. They needed something to break up the musical acts that they have. And Bing Crosby and Al Rinker fit right into what they needed. So now, not a year into the industry, they were now connected with one of the biggest names there was. And they got hired for 150 bucks a week, which works out to be about $2,100. So hey, they're moving up in the world. They made their first recording on October 26th. It was a song called I've Got the Girl. And they debuted with Whiteman on December 6th at the Tivoli Theater in Chicago. But by the time they had reached New York City, Whiteman was starting to change his mind about what he wanted to do with this duo that he had. You see, Crosby could have been retained. Whiteman was already using him as a solo performer on record. But for Al Rinker, he didn't really see much reason in holding on to him. But in came Harry Barris was a piano player and an aspiring songwriter. And it kind of made the difference. To put the three of them together meant that they could be heard in bigger theaters. And Crosby used this to gain a lot of experience. They became a band called the Rhythm Boys. And now Crosby started to get experience with not only recording and performing, but interacting with other artists and maturing as a performer and at about the right time because he started to become very in demand as a solo artist. Crosby, at the time of the Rhythm Boys, became the star attraction of the band. In 1928, they had their first number one song, which was a jazz-influenced rendition of the song Old Man River. And in 1929, the Rhythm Boys appeared in a film called The King of Jazz, with Whiteman. But by this point, Crosby was starting to get really frustrated with Whiteman. So him and the group left Whiteman, and they went and joined with Gus Arnheim and his orchestra 
and then they would play nightly out of the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel. As these performances went on, Crosby's solos started to steal the show. They started to be the highlight of the entire thing, and it became more and more clear that Crosby's future was to be a solo artist, and being with the band was rather redundant. And by 1931, Bing Crosby was signed to a solo recording contract. His debut was going to be on September 2nd of 1931. He made a solo radio debut, and by the end of the year, he had signed with both Brunswick and CBS Radio to do a 15-minute radio broadcast every week. And he became a hit with songs like Out of Nowhere, Just One More Chance, and At Your Command, which were some of the best songs of 1931. In fact, 10 of the top 50 songs of 1931 were songs by Bing Crosby or him with a supporting group. So one-fifth of the songs. So not only was he a seasoned radio personality, in fact, he was one of the first radio personalities to pre-record his shows and master his commercial recordings onto magnetic tape. So pretty much anybody in the radio industry would have Bing Crosby to thank for kind of starting that trend. And on top of that, he is a successful musician. As we just went through, he and his songs were one-fifth of the top 50 songs of 1931. And now Bing Crosby was going to enter into the world of motion pictures, the first of which being a movie called The Big Broadcast in 1932, which would be the first of 55 movies he was in that he received top billing. And he appeared in 79 movies themselves. And after the release of this movie, The Big Broadcast, Bing's popularity seemed to skyrocket. Not only did that performance net him a contract with Paramount, he also continued to lead this radio show that he had for Woodbury Soap for two seasons. His live, uh, appearances kind of dwindled a bit, but the big thing that he did was right around the Depression, Bing had signed for a record company called Decca, and Decca's founder was a guy named Jack Cap. and the idea at the time was that when you sold a record, when you sold an album, that the album cost one dollar, and of that one dollar included the artist's fee the money it took to produce the record, and the cost of all the stuff that went into producing it and making it and releasing it. But in 1934, the Depression, people didn't have that kind of money to be spending on records. A, a dollar was a lot of money. But Jack had an idea, an idea that wasn't really biting with any of the other artists, which was that he would lower the price of singles from a dollar to 35 cents, the cost that it cost to make it, and that he would sell the record, and of the sales of the record, however many they would be, that the artist would then get royalties from that, a, a, a fee for how many records they sold. The only person who seemed to really gravitate to that idea and support it was Bing Crosby, and many believe that if it wasn't for Jack Cap and Bing Crosby, 
that the record industry on a whole may have crashed during the Depression. A few years later, Bing Crosby then replaced Paul Whiteman as the host of the weekly NBC program Craft Music Hall. Now, just a quick history lesson. If you don't know what Craft Music Hall is, it's a radio variety program. you got to remember, in 1936, TV wasn't really a thing. It was radio programs. People had, like, variety shows, and they had entertainers. And, and one of the biggest of that time was this Craft Music Hall. Featured a lot of music, some comedy and variety stuff. And the host had been... Paul Whiteman, and now he was replaced by Bing Crosby, who would be the host of Craft Music Hall for the next decade. The song, Where the Blue Night Meets the Gold of Day, became his signature theme song. In 1936, Bing Crosby also did something that was incredibly forward-thinking at the time. Now, keep in mind, it's 1936. The idea of slavery and racism and all that stuff, not a too far gone idea. In fact, still very much going. So, Bing Crosby wanted to exercise an option from Paramount. He said, goes to Paramount and he says, I want to make a movie, but not with Paramount. I want to make it with Columbia. But I want your permission to, you know, have a one-time deal with Columbia. And Paramount, you know... Him being such a big star, Paramount agreed to it. Crosby, the reason he wanted to go to Columbia, was he wanted his friend, Louis Armstrong. Now, Louis Armstrong is an African-American performer. And, of course, at the time, African-American performers were not treated very well. They were not even really treated like people, for the most part. But anyways, he wanted to do this because Louis Armstrong influenced a lot of his singing style. So he wanted to make this movie called Pennies from Heaven, and it was an adaptation of The Peacock Feather. He asked a guy by the name of Harry Kahn, but Kahn had no desire to pay for the flight and be in Armstrong's presence around his crude, mob-linked, but devoted manager, Joe Glasser. At this point, Crosby didn't want to hear any more of it. Fine, you don't want to be in the movie, don't be in the movie. But they went on and produced it anyways. And Louis Armstrong's musical scenes and comic dialogue helped to move his career forward. And, on top of that, Bing Crosby gave Armstrong equal pay with the white co-stars. So the white actors made as much money as Louis Armstrong did. Nobody made any more. And Louis Armstrong would go on to make many more films after that but would always appreciate Bing Crosby's lack of racism and being treated as an equal. And Crosby had developed music stylings that now helped the music industry move forward. In fact, he kind of popularized the whole idea of the whole crooner idea. He was the one who started that whole thing. And during the thralls of the Second World War, Crosby made a ton of live appearances for the American troops, and he learned how to pronounce German from manuscripts and read propaganda broadcasts intended for German forces. By the end of the Second World War, Crosby topped the charts as the person who had done the most for GI morale ahead of 
President Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, and Bob Hope. On June 18, 1945, Life magazine had written an article about Bing Crosby, and they stated exactly this. America's number one star, Bing Crosby, has won more fans, made more money than any entertainer in history. Today, he is a kind of national institution. In all, 60 million Crosby discs have been marketed since he made his first record in 1931. His biggest bestseller is White Christmas, 2 million impressions of which have been sold in the U.S. and 250,000 in Great Britain. Nine out of ten singers and band leaders listen to Crosby's broadcast each Thursday night and follow his lead. The day after he sings a song over the air, any song, some 50,000 copies of it are sold throughout the U.S. Time and time again, Crosby has taken some new or unknown ballad, has given it what is known in trade circles as the Big Goose, and made it a hit, single-handedly and overnight. Precisely what the future holds for Crosby, neither his family nor his friends can conjecture. He has achieved greater popularity, made more money, attract vaster audiences than any other entertainer in history. And his star is still in the ascendant. His contract with DECA runs until 1955. His contract with Paramount runs until 1954. Records which he made 10 years ago are selling better than ever before. The nation's appetite for Crosby's voice and personality appears insatiable. To soldiers overseas and to the foreigners, he has become a kind of symbol of America, an ambiable, humorous citizen of a free land. Crosby, however, seldom bothers to contemplate his future. For one thing, he enjoys hearing himself sing. And if ever a day should dawn where the public wearies of hearing him, he will complacently go right on singing to himself. Now, I know that's really wordy and daunting as to what it's actually saying, and a lot of it should really make sense and shouldn't be too confusing, but it really gives you an idea of just how impactful and popular Bing Crosby was, which was right at about the end of the recording and music career part of Bing Crosby's life. Because Bing Crosby from music kind of developed into more of a film artist and a producer and all these other things. His music side of his career was kind of really over at about the 1954 to 57 era, as far as the musical act part of his career goes, because he continued much longer in other things. But of his music career, he was one of the most successful music acts of the 20th century. And during that time, he had 396 chart singles, including 41 number one hits. That's more than the Beatles and Elvis combined. Crosby had a separate charting single every year between 1931 and 1954, and in the recording industry might have been the best-selling recording artist with about a billion units sold. The biggest of those singles was, of course, the song White Christmas. 
The song was originally written by a guy named Irving Berlin, and it was introduced on Christmas Day as sung by Bing Crosby in 1941, and then reappeared in the movie Holiday Inn, which was released in 1942. And his song hit the charts on October 3rd of 1942 and rose to number one on Halloween and stayed there for 11 weeks and since then has become a, a holiday hit and has charted another 16 times. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, his recording of White Christmas has sold more than 100 million copies around the world with at least $50 million in sales as singles. It was so popular that it was re-recorded again in 1947 using the same band and the same backup singers as the 1942 version, and the 1942 master had become damaged due to the fact that it had been printed additionally so many times. So there's technically two versions, 1942 and 1947. The 47's probably the more common one that you know. Following his music career, he went on to do more films. He did films like Road to Zanzibar in 1941, Road to Morocco in 42, Road to Utopia in 46, Road to Rio in 47, and Road to Bali in 1952. Am I missing one? Road to Hong Kong in 1962. He also did the narration for the 1949 Disney animated film The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, and he did the song vocals for The Legend of Sleepy Hollow within that movie. As far as his acting career went, for 15 years, he was among the top 10 acts in the box office. And for five of those years, between 1944 and 1948, he topped the world. He sang four songs that were Academy Award winning, and received an Academy Award for Best Actor in a movie called Going My Way, which was released in 1944. A survey found that over a billion movie tickets sold, Crosby was the third most popular actor of all time, behind Clark Gable and John Wayne. Of those films, his most popular was White Christmas. That grossed $30 million in 1954, which, if you're curious to know, works out to be just about $275 million today. Just a little chunk of change. Now, I think for last days alive and doing all the things that you might want to do in life, Bing Crosby almost, almost had it pegged. So on October 13th of 1977, he flew to Spain to play golf. Now, keep in mind, Bing Crosby loved golf. One of his favorite things in the world to do. So, on October 14th, he went to play golf. His partner was a World Cup champion. And through the round of golf, Bing Crosby had been photographed. At the ninth hole, they even stopped because a couple of construction workers recognized Bing Crosby and he stopped and sang Strangers in the Night for them. Overall, he was in great spirits. He didn't win, he lost by a single stroke. But the day had been good. And after the round of golf... He said, you know, let's go back to the clubhouse and have a Coke. And at about 6.30, he collapsed, 20 yards away from the clubhouse entrance, and died instantly from a massive heart attack. Bing Crosby was 74 years old at the time. Now, 
death is always kind of one of those things where it's unexpected and it's sad. It's, but as far as things go, he had this wonderful day before he passed away. And I think that's such a touching idea. After his death, his son released a memoir, which was hugely critical of Bing Crosby. It was called Going My Own Way. And it depicted Bing Crosby as this cruel, cold, physically and psychologically abusive person. Which maybe to a degree I believe a little bit because he grew up, 1903 he was born. So he's probably a little rough around the edges. I don't think he was cruel and physically and psychologically abusive. And I wasn't the only person who disagreed with that idea. In fact, Bing Crosby's younger son, Philip, disputed it himself, stating that Gary, the older brother, is a whining, bitching crybaby, walking around with a two-by-four on his shoulder and just daring people to nudge it off. However, he also did admit that his dad, Bing Crosby, wasn't opposed to corporal punishment, which is spanking or whatever. And he said, you know, we never got an extra whack or a cuff we didn't deserve. So, you know, when they were bad, they got a, a whooping. End of story. He didn't beat them savagely or go after them mentally. And he went on to be quoted as saying this. My dad was not the monster my lying brother says he was. He was strict, but my father never beat us black and blue. And my brother Gary was a vicious, no-good liar for saying so. I have nothing but fond memories of Dad. Going to the studios with him, family vacations at our cabin in Idaho, boating and fishing with him. To my dying day, I'll hate Gary for dragging Dad's name through the mud. He wrote Going My Own Way out of greed. He wanted to make money, and he knew that humiliating our father and blackening his name was the only way he could do it. He knew it would generate a lot of publicity, that was the only way he could get his ugly, no-talent face on television and in the newspapers. My dad was my hero. I loved him very much. He loved all of us, too, including Gary. He was a great father. And that is a wonderful thing for a son to say about his father. And for us as people who listen to music and, and really attached to artists, having that impression is the perfect way to end Somebody who is famous for one of the most famous Christmas songs ever written. Now, I hope you guys have a great holiday season. If you celebrate Christmas, fantastic. Um, if not, that's cool too. If you're Jewish, happy Hanukkah. I think Hanukkah is still going on. I think there's a couple more days left in it. I really hope I'm not wrong. Um, and to whatever else you guys celebrate. I hope you guys have a great holiday season. And best of luck in 2019. Oh my goodness, we're almost at perfect vision, 2020. Um, I don't know that I'll make an episode next week. I'm really kind of ambitious about making an episode next week, so I'll just go ahead and say I'm going to go ahead and make an episode next week. Close to Christmas, but I do it for you guys. So I will see you next week, and we'll continue growing together.